0: A big welcome to anybody who's arrived recently. Good to have you here. Several people mentioned in the interviews today, and I think all of us who have practiced here have felt that the place itself and the community and, of course, the teachings there's a real transmission just being here. I mentioned or I talked about last uh, Tuesday for those who weren't here about resolve or resoluteness. <clears throat> and I framed it as I think we should because it can, uh, otherwise this uh, any sort of talk on effort can Get channeled into like, uh, why aren't I a better practitioner? What's wrong with me? You know, I'm so weak or restless or distractible or afraid or I just like my comforts. (laughs) I'm just here for the food. So when we hear teachings about resolve or effort, it can bring up this, you know, each of us, of course, will be, the conditioning will be different, but just not being good enough and any shame that might be related. Now, Not everybody has that tendency, of course, but many of us do in some fashion. But at the same time, And the way I framed it last week is that the path, because we're, in a way, we're going against the grain of our conditioning and the grain of our culture, our cultures, which generally are about distraction and superficiality and willful effort leading to something that I get and I become, in other words, diluted. So the practice, the path really does take energy. It isn't something, you know, we're not here just following the tendencies, the conditioned tendencies of our heart and mind. Because if if that's how we did, then we'd get a world like we have. So, we're going against the grain, and it takes a lot of energy. And to really connect and sustain ourselves on this path, we really need that energy of love and desire, which really brings us back to resolve. We have to distill what the heart, with wisdom, with real care, distill what the heart really cares about cares so much that it's willing to forego other things. And it isn't a sacrifice in that kind of conventional sense like, oh, poor me, I don't get to eat what I want, or, oh, poor me, I let's see my favorite programs. Or, But it, because we get to do what the heart truly desires, not necessarily easy, but it's okay that renunciation is okay, it's not a problem, because we're doing what we really wanna do. I'm sure that in different ways, we're all exploring this territory, have had moments where we are so grateful to be here, and other moments where we recognize that it's hard to be here, it's hard not to have whatever we'd have back home. So tonight I wanna talk about uh, refuge in light of that sense that um, in my life, on this path, in my practice, I really want to tune in to what the heart really loves, really cares about more than anything else. And I hope you realize, don't expect clarity. (laughs) You know, we're very much in life often, we're just feeling our way through. And a lot of the clarity is like, what isn't worthy of our devotion? Isn't that true? We can have really great clarity oh, this really isn't helping. I sense that conditioned habit to go there, to seek that, to hold on here in my life. But I'm, I'm having this deeper, more resonant conviction. This isn't helping me. This isn't helping anyone. This should be abandoned. doesn't mean we can abandon it. So, a lot of this work of resolve, aspiration, refuge, we have to think of it as uh, ongoing. And uh, if you're like me, you know, we tend to want to rush it. But so much of understanding the path is really learning to appreciate the process, not so much about getting there but about realizing more and more ease, more and more space in the process. Otherwise it becomes this perfectionist trip, you know, I'm just in a hurry to become perfect (laughs) so I can be done. As opposed to realizing in little and big ways That, uh, that being a practitioner, being on the path, purifying the heart, doesn't have to be the burden that we might imagine it has to be. And this is another thing I'm guessing that a lot of you have noticed these days being here at the Forest Refuge. Moments where it feels like a real burden to be here you know, to connect with the present moment one more time. And other moments where it feels, you know, effortless and uh, beautiful and natural to be present. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jnana Ponika Terra, one of, uh, he's passed away now, but... um, Way back, quite a long time ago, several Europeans went to Sri Lanka and ordained and quite influential in the Dharma coming here to the West because they did a lot of translation, including Janapal And he wrote an article on refuge. And he asked these uh, three questions, which is really useful for us, I think, to ask because you know this recitation we did at the beginning, it's kind of nice and it's a way of all of us connecting with our lineage, the elders, the people before us, because wherever the Buddhist teachings have gone, chanting the refuges in Pali, this language of early Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, this has been the uh, sort of the ritual so we, it's a nice way of just feeling tied in to the people before us. But more than that beautiful recitation, it's really a practice of understanding what is it that is worthy of our wholeheartedness. So Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha is really code for us. We have to make it code or a, a placeholder for what's really alive, and moving, and resonant, and uh, energizing in our practice, in our hearts. What really can animate, enliven our practice. And these are these three refuges. So the first question he asks, is this world of ours really such a place of danger and misery that there is need for taking refuge? Just consider that question, do we need a refuge in our lives? And it's related to this comment I made a moment ago about, and just to extend it, you know, what if we just, if you and I and everybody here on the planet just allowed their tendencies, the tendencies of their conditioned mind to do whatever they wanted to do. Well, we'd get a kind of world like this, except maybe even worse, no restraint, no training. One of the things we notice when we're on a, in a retreat setting is uh, we could be so grateful that we have this capacity of restraint. That we have so many different impulses, but you know, a lot of those impulses, when there's enough wisdom and enough stability of awareness, without any kind of meanness or frustration, we can just sense that that tendency, that impulse isn't worthy of attention, isn't worthy of acting on. And of course, there are the other intentions and tendencies that we do act on, and some of them get us in trouble. You know, there's nothing like being on a longer retreat and getting really sensitive and then having one of those impulses to worry about something or to plan something or to fantasize, and the mind does take the bait, and off to the races, and five minutes later or three hours later or two days later, whatever, and then we, you know, something rallies or there just ends because of exhaustion, but once wisdom awareness returns, we observe the sort of field of destruction, all the resonant entanglements and burdensomeness of the heart (laughs) that continues on even after the mind has dropped the content, it's no longer actively entangled. Uh, the energetic reverberations can continue for a while. So is this world of ours really such a place of danger and misery that there's need for taking refuge? I don't know about you, but my answer is yes. <laughs> and, and I bet if we took the time to hear from everyone in the room, about how you found the Dharma, these teachings, it often, not always, you know, there's probably an infinite number of ways we kind of connect with the path, but a lot of us, it was this sense, like the Buddha says in one of the suttas, you know, in the experience of suffering, one either laments and beats their breasts, you know, oh, You know, oh poor me or why me or complaining in one way or another or one undertakes a search, the Buddha said. And uh, who or where have humans found a refuge that's worthy of our full, wholehearted commitment, presence, As you probably know, the Buddha often used the simile of the floods, you know. And when we're just watching our own mind, feeling our own hearts, observing those around us, reading the news when we're not on retreat, we really see the flood of sensual craving driving so much and the flood of becoming. And just the flood of ignorance and fixed views and self views and conceits, these are the floods. So, and we probably, hopefully we actually sense because of the momentum of habit, how easy it is for us just to continue. And and even they can, these floods can in fact our Dharma practice. So the second question he asks, does a refuge exist? Is there something that is actually worthy of our attention, worthy of our putting our heart upon it, giving our life to it, the practice, the path, the refuge? And the third question, if so, if a refuge exists, what is its nature? I wanna talk about this tonight. He goes on and he defines refuge as a conscious act of will. Some of you might recognize this. It's like if a refuge is really going to change, then it needs to be related to some intentional act because intention leaves leaves an impression it's an intervention in the in the mind stream, right? Everything rests on the tip of motivation and tension. It matters. And so, he defines refuge as a conscious act of will, directed toward liberation. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you know, our sense of freedom, liberation, is in process. And we should have a humility. And a lot of our, our kind of clarity about liberation and freedom comes from direct and immediate experience, not of freedom, but of entanglement. But that's something. That's actually real. <laughs> you know, we know what the burdened, heart feels like. The tight heart, the entangled mind, the obsessive mind. We know what identification with shame feels like, or not being good enough, right? So um, directed toward liberation, like this is the thing about dukkha, suffering that grip of the heart, is if we have a more and more, with practice, honest, sensitive relationship with it, then the heart can intuit the non-grip. When we know the grip, we can intuit the release of that grip. When we feel the weight, the heaviness of the heart, we can intuit the heart not burdened, not heavy, so, a conscious act of will directed toward liberation based on knowledge. So, here knowledge is our direct experience, grounded, arising out of our direct experience, inspired by faith. And this is from Ajahn Jayasaro, this uh, Thai forest monk, British Thai forest monk. Faith clarifies the goal, focuses our effort, and fills us with energy. Ultimately, it's wisdom rather than faith that moves mountains, but it is faith that impels us to move them in the first place, and faith that sustains us through the inevitable frustrations that dog our efforts. And there's really no way out of this uh, aspect of the spiritual life of learning how to cultivate, resolve, grounded in our own experience, faith, shaping it as a refuge through our own discernment. And I forget who said this, but just remembering that... um, you know, rejecting something, not exploring these teachings and what refuge, what is actually dependable in these teachings, not investigating this is uh, kind of just as much an act of blind faith, this person said, as it would be just blindly accepting something without careful consideration. So that tendency for some of us to be cynical, nothing is worthy of being wholehearted. Because every time I've been wholehearted, I've been betrayed. In relationships, in activism, in this place, in that place. So my strategy in life is to hold back (laughs) to not care but that's an act of blind faith just as much as somebody maybe who's we'd consider idealistic and just hops on this train and then hops on that train and and the point here is really and this is just so central to the buddhist teachings you know it's really a path of wisdom doesn't mean we need to be intellectually smart though you know like any talent, it's nice to have some talents. To be fortunate to be healthy, to be fortunate to be, you know, smart in an intellectual way. But this wisdom isn't about that. It's really about this distillation, like our lived experience being distilled in a way that the underlying principles of Our experience, our actual experience, or just helping to shape what we trust, how we orient our life. I like that sort of way of talking about the practice as an alignment with nature, an alignment with Dhamma the way it is. So instead of I'm here trying to get to awakening, it's that. There is this, and in waking up or opening up and more stability of awareness, more sensitivity, that kind of openness itself is allowing everything to align with everything. And that's the path. This is from uh, Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation, Near the Beginning. He's got a little chapter called Fear of Enlightenment. Meditators sometimes report that fear of liberation holds them back in their practice. As they proceed into uncharted territory, fear of the unknown becomes an obstacle to surrender. But this is not really fear of enlightenment. It is rather fear of ideas about enlightenment. We all have notions about freedom dissolving in a great burst of light or in a great cosmic flash. The mind might invent many different images of the experience of liberation. Sometimes our ego creates images of its own death that frighten us. Liberation means letting go of suffering Do you fear the prospect of being free from greed? Do you fear being free from anger or delusion? Probably not. Liberation means freeing ourselves from those qualities in the mind that torment and limit us. So freedom is not something magical or mysterious. It does not make us weird. Enlightenment means purifying our mind and letting go of those things that cause so much suffering in our lives. It is very down to earth. The thing about, excuse me, the thing about cultivating refuge, a kind of that that deepening clarity gives, the energy of resolve that. That wholesome desire, that wholesome devotional energy, something to organize around. And it really shapes it. Like in the Dharma, so much of what we're doing, I think I mentioned in one of the morning reflections, you know, we're just cultivating the sensitivity, the stability of awareness, so that there's. This capacity to discern about planting wholesome or unwholesome seeds. How can I relate right now that is planting seeds for release, seeds for ease and metta, loving kindness, seeds for curiosity? How can I avoid and abandon planting seeds for conceit? Seeds for agitation. Seeds for hate and greed and distraction. Or it can be just, you know, is this way of being, this way of relating right now, in the direction of release? Or in the direction suffering. Just to be interested, I mean, can, can we imagine if, in all the twists and turns of our lives, if we had been just curious right before we were about to say something, or right before we were about to do something, or right before we were about to avoid saying or doing something, if we just had that sincere, gentle, non-invasive curiosity, I wonder if this is helpful for myself and for others. Just something simple. I wonder if this would be helpful. The Buddha, you might remember this well-known passage. Just in clarifying his own path, it's like we can put ourselves in the Buddha's shoes This is really the human predicament. So he said in one of the discourses, practitioners, before my awakening, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisatta, someone, bodhisatta is the Pali version of bodhisattva, means technically it means somebody on the way to awakening. I too, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow and defilement, I sought what was also subject to birth, aging, death, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. Then I considered thus, why, being myself subject to all of this, right, do I seek what is also subject to all of this? Suppose that, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, having, underst- having understood the danger and what a subject to all of this. Seek the unborn, the unailing, deathless, sorrowless, and undefiled. Supreme security f- from bondage. Nibbana. And remember, at the time of the Buddha, some of his first teachers, they were quite skilled in deep states of absorption. So they were accessing really profound, peaceful states of concentration, right? Jhana, evidently. But, and the Buddha mastered, you know, was a good student and mastered what they had to teach, and one of them even invited the Buddha to join him as a co-teacher. But the Buddha realized that those beautiful healing states they arose, they lasted for a while, and they ended. And he was interested in something that also didn't come and go. <laughs> the heart's unshakable release. So I just, that's uh, inspiring to, because some of us have a pretty privileged position I mean, if we're at the Forest Refuge now, even if there are difficulties in our life, it's a pretty good fortune just to be at such a nice place and to be taken care of in the way that we're all being taken care of. I know it's not perfect, but it's, relatively speaking, a nice place to be. So, you know, we're we're all doing pretty well. But probably among us, we're often quite motivated, knowing that however nice my life is, it's fragile. My well being, the ease of my body, the clarity of my mind, my good spirit, you know, being relatively happy or whatever, it could change like I could read the news, (laughs) and that would change it, right? The frustration or whatever. So we understand that this heart still remains vulnerable. My happiness, my well-being, my ease of heart is conditioned, and I'm not in control of the conditions, So it gets pushed around by, like there've been a couple of mosquitoes hanging out in my cabin, you know, I'm next, I got one of the little buildings next to the administration building and uh, I got one of them outside today. But it's like, you know, such an ideal place and just something as small as a pesky little bug that I don't want to kill you know, can be a disturbance. Let alone, you know, this and that and a hangnail and, you know, sore back or whatever. These things can get huge. And that kind of wakes us up a little bit about our exposure because we understand how much how wide and deep the suffering, the oppression, the injustice, the misfortune that's out there, right? And some of us, some of you, perhaps experience some of that. Now, the really provocative thing in terms of understanding refuge and how we might use this energy of resolve is... um, You know, the Buddha's teachings that the refuge is here and now. There's that famous teaching, I'm sure probably all of you have heard, Rohitasa came to see the Buddha. And uh, evidently this being was a dewa, one of the celestial beings. And asked the Buddha, like, is there a place to go that's beyond what comes and goes, beyond birth and death, beyond suffering. Is there some place that I need to go? And the Buddha gave this very provocative answer. I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end to suffering and stress without reaching the end of the cosmos, reaching the end of the world of suffering, you could say. Yet it is just within this fathom-long body with its perception, intellect. He's really talking about the, this body-mind. With its perception, intellect, that I declare there, that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the world. So he's really talking about that both the truth of suffering, the experience of suffering, and its cessation, it's here and now. So that means the refuge is related to what's here and now. And that really helps us along the way. Because it's, in a way, it's this lack of respect of here and now. You know, we've got these pervasive habits that are described in the tradition. Some people translate it as the four perversions or the four distortions. Some of you have heard this, right? We take what's not permanent to be permanent, what's not ultimately satisfying to be satisfying, what's not self to be self, what's not beautiful to be beautiful. We're distorted in this way, we're misreading or misunderstanding. And this helps us, like the refuge is really this, it depends on the sensitivity to here and now because the understanding of what here and now, this here and now, is what's off. This is our refuge. And we can ask ourselves: you know, has our mind been the source of suffering? (laughs) Like when we're suffering, where's that suffering? It's here in the heart and mind. And when that suffering, that stress, being bound up, or whatever, ceases, where does that cessation happen? Here, in the heart and mind. In a way, you know, as our sensitivity, stability of mind, concentration deepens, we really sense that this experience right now, like the experience you're having, I'm having right now, This is the heart and mind. Where is this being experienced, being felt, being known? Here, now. This is a moment of mind, a moment of heart. And this is where suffering arises, and this is where suffering ceases. Did I mention, I might have mentioned last Tuesday, for those who were here, but these three similes that the Buddha used in describing the path, the simile of the hen, when the hen rightly incubates the eggs, they'll hatch. Even if the hen doesn't want them to hatch, if the hen does the right things, the eggs are going to hatch. If the hen really, really wants the eggs to hatch but doesn't incubate them, it doesn't matter that the hen wants the eggs to hatch. They're not going to hatch. That was the first simile. The second is the axe handle. Can a person tell how much more the axe handle has worn down one day by the next? No. The 10 days of using that axe every single day, using it hard every single day, one can be pretty sure this axe handle is really worn down. But not day by day. That was the second simile in terms of describing the path. And then the third is this uh, <clears throat> ship that's been out in the ocean, fishing probably, and then pulled up during the bad weather, and left in the dry dock, uh, exposed to the wind and the rain and the sun, and humidity. And the image is the sails and the rigging rotting away. And that was the third image. Something rots away. When the causes are there, the effect will be there. Can't be discerned day by day, but over a longer period of time, there will be no doubt in the mind, something is afoot. Some of you have been at it for quite a long time. I bet you could confirm this second simile that I'm not the same person I was 15 years ago when I started my practice, or five years ago. Something has been worn away, like reactivity, <laughs> right? The tendency to be conceited in any way, better than, worse than, same as. That. Just less likely for the mind to get sticky with conceit. Still does it. Less sticky, less tight, more space around these habits of selfing, Right? And it's just really useful to get, to sort of confirm, yeah, suffering arises here, it ceases here, the refuge is here. You know, the, the Buddha was really big on independence, becoming independent. He would use that sometimes, I think several times in the suttas, you know, this person is independent. They're not dependent on a teacher. Their teacher is now their own experience. They have enough understanding. The Buddhas cannot wash away our sins with water. They cannot remove our suffering with their hands. They cannot transfer their insights to us. All they can do is teach the Dharma I am my own protector. It's a passage from some of the later sutras, um, but related to something that you'll find in the early discourses. And some of you remember Menindaji, one of Joseph Goldstein's first teachers, and Kamala Masters, also uh, somebody I teach with a lot, and one of my teachers as well, Kamala Masters, Mr. Uh, devoted student of Manitajis, and he, he had something like that, you know. The Buddha's already done his work, now it's your turn, or something like that. I forget the exact words, but it was something kind of retort, you know. The Buddha's done his work, now it's your turn. So how do we take refuge? And as I mentioned earlier, you know, it really arises from this uh, having a more respectful and sensitive relationship with dukkha. Because if we can, in a more direct and subjective way, because it's here and now, in the heart, here and now, that grip, or however we're experiencing it, to whatever degree we have a more honest and sensitive and relaxed, curious, relationship with dukkha then naturally unavoidably really the intuition of the release is there even before the release right do you you sense that and we had that experience a lot i mean this is sort of done on so many different levels in practice where we're just sort of aware of some holding in the body you know And we try all our tricks to make it go away, and eventually, you know, we give up because it just makes things worse. And we're just there, present with it, balanced, as if it were never to go away. And then sometimes something happens. We learn something about the body and about the body's habits of holding. Not always course and like the hen you know wanting the contraction the tension in the body to go away isn't actually the cause if if part of what we're feeling as the contraction in the body is the mind's aversion to it right wanting it to go away is just going to amplify that being curious Having a different relationship to it, being spacious, that removes one of the causes. Possibly, this is also from Nyanaponika Thera, this um, Sri Lankan monk, a uh, Westerner, and he talked about the four stages of taking refuge. The first is homage, respect, humility. And just really owning that, you know, in um, in early Buddhism, we talk about wisdom coming first from, you know, sensing that this teacher or these teachings have something to teach me, and we're willing to listen, willing to really receive, and then we contemplate, we memorize, and then, you know, or learn it well enough so we can contemplate it. We can chew on it. So even this is still somewhat intellectual. You know, we're regurgitating what we've studied, what we've read, what we've heard. But now we're in the contemplation phase, we're applying, using the teaching to connect with our actual experience. That's the whole point of the teachings. (laughs) Teachings, I always thought, A clever T-shirt for our our Dharma Center in Minneapolis would be Common Ground Meditation Center, skillful means for deluded people, right? Because that's what the, the Dharma is. It's not skillful means for awakened people. It's skillful means for deluded people. So when we get some teachings, they're for deluded people, for us, to use to shift how we connect how we relate how we open so we're not opening with wrong view but with a wiser view a wiser way of understanding or opening less distorted right those four distortion taking what is impermanent to be permanent what is unsatisfactory to be satisfactory what is not self to be self what is not beautiful doesn't mean it's ugly but what is not beautiful to be beautiful so the first stage is this humility second is this acceptance of this discipleship he says which i like i mean this is sort of old-fashioned language we can push some of our buttons but you know we get a teaching that resonates you know we know that we don't know we get some teaching we don't know if it's right but it resonates we check it out enough and at some point we have to commit i'm going to really use this because there's no learning unless we really use the teaching like the teaching that Being present is liberating. Stabilizing present moment awareness brings happiness now, later, and in the end. And we have to check it out enough, but once you find that being present really amplifies learning, then we should all be all in. What are we waiting for? And that's the third step. It becomes our guiding ideal or value, highest value. Our guiding light. And it's just just interesting. I mean, I say this to myself. It's just interesting, this holding back in life. And I mentioned uh, some of you, a lot of you probably know Pema children. But that was her you know, little retort about what is refuge, it's the not holding back. So once we've gotten some information from our elders and checked it out and it aligns with our experience, it seems good in the beginning, middle and end. Why haven't we gotten that to the top of the list? Our number one priority, our guiding light and the fourth step is surrender, total surrender. So there's that humility, that initial acceptance of discipleship becoming our guiding ideal, and then total surrender. I remember a time, this is very early, like I think it was maybe 83 or 82, and I was uh, out backpacking in Idaho by myself out in the mountains, and I'd had this summer where I'd really discovered meditation in a really big and profound way and I just remember this sort of like this strong resolve arising in my heart just like oh yeah this is this is what my life is going to be about and it it wasn't it wasn't naive like I didn't know what my life was going to be about I I knew that I didn't know what it was going to look like but I knew that somehow This practice that I was just getting a sense of just the beginning part but that this practice I hadn't found anything that made sense that resonated that was so mysterious like had my interest there was nothing else that made any sense compared to this and it really like it was a real pivot point in my life. Everything changed. You know, just the choices just naturally arose out of that sense of this is what makes, this stands out above everything else in terms of its relevance. Like there's a heart, there's a mind, and it should be understood because it is so central to suffering and the ending of suffering right here and now you know when I was younger I, I, I really had this thought oh yeah I'll, I'll become an economist and I'll work for you the United Nations and I'll you know do something good in the world and um, but it was just you know so naive you know this is so much of the suffering in the world has happened precisely because people like that thought that way, (laughs) you know, like, of course we need to invade, because they need to, you know, they need our technology or they need our whatever. from one of the discourses after investigation among all the spiritual doctrines in seeing misery in adopting any view, searching for truth that came to purity and inner peace, not by spiritual view, not by tradition, not by knowledge, not nor by virtue and good deeds. Can anyone say that purity exists, freedom, Like here, purity means like the heart free of greed, hatred, and delusion, or the heart free of grasping. And then he goes on, nor by absence of spiritual views, by absence of tradition, by absence of knowledge, by absence of virtue and good deeds either. Having abandoned these without adopting anything else, let such a one live calm and independent, not led into any of the resting places of the mind. So I use the you know the code of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And when I do the refuges out loud, like a formal recitation or just in my own heart. You know, I, I try to connect those words to what's happening here and now subjectively in my heart, in my mind in this moment, being intimate with the way it is, with the swirl of sound and sight and sensation and thought and emotion, opening to that. And and just exploring. This is the, the place of exploration, isn't it? Is there a worthy refuge here? Like, is it dangerous to open in that simple and profound way to experience? I mean, we have one moment after the next to do it. It doesn't matter how many moments we missed, because there's the next one. And that and Sangha is really sort of the, the manifestation of its value because we see in ourselves and in others moments of real sangha, like where that person, the activity of that life is so beautiful, so nimble, so appropriate, so useful and helpful. And we sense how sangha arises when Buddha is intimate with Dhamma. I think I mentioned in one of the morning reflections that marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. And just to see, like, you'll see that in moments here on retreat, your sangha, your walking or eating your food or sitting and breathing is really empty of the defilements. There's no hatred, no greed, no disconnection or delusion. And there's that very simple, pure, right, the the problem isn't there, and you may not, no one might not, I mean, there may be no one catching. <laughs> you, you don't need to put a sign out. But just to, to appreciate that, and you might sense it in other people, just their the relative freedom. Well, that's what sangha is in the deepest sense. It's the activity of life when the heart isn't bound up with grasping or greed, hatred, and delusion. And of course, that just amplifies the energy of faith or confidence, the resoluteness. and really using the refuges to, you know, it's like a growing, deepening, broadening sense of possibility that's always here now. The key is to understand, because it's here and now, all the ingredients are here. We don't need a different retreat when we have our act together or a different moment. Of course, the thought of that I need a new retreat does have implications or the identification with the thought. And that's why the the resolve and the aspiration and the refuge is so important because it, it points that This moment has all the ingredients for hell, for heaven, and for release, the full and unshakable release. So let's leave it here. Let go of the words. We'll take a few seconds of silence, and then we'll chant the reflections on sharing blessings together. It's on the back side of the refuges. But first, we'll just take a few seconds and let the words fall away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.